Good morning. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and we'll get there in a little while. I want to thank you for being here. If you're a guest with us, this is your first time. We're honored that you'd be here with us at New Hope. I hope you felt encouraged and welcomed the whole time since the moment you walked in the doors. That's my hope for you. If you don't mind, if this is your church home or this, if you're a first-time guest, there's a Connect card in the seat back in front of you. If you'd fill that out, and I'll tell you why. Yes, we do like it when you put information on it. Uh, it allows us to get you information about getting connected around here. More than anything, though, we love being able to pray for you. You can put prayer requests on the back of that card. Every Saturday morning, our elders gather. We pray together over the people in the church, and so we would love to be able to pray for you as well. And so you can fill that card out, and at the end of the service, we'll have a time of offering. Just drop it in the tray there. I want to pray for us, and we're going to jump in. We've got a lot to cover today. Let's jump in. Um, but first, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this beautiful thing called the church. Thank you for your bride. Thank you, God, that you love us and care for us, that you've connected us in a way that we can find no other connection like the church in all the world, and it's because of Jesus. And so today, as we look at what we believe about the church, my prayer is that it would pierce our minds and hearts. We would walk out of here different than when we came in. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible. One of my favorite stories when I read through the Bible is found in Exodus chapter 17. And it's a pretty fascinating story. Let me give you a little backdrop before I tell you about that story. Uh, God's people, uh, God had called his people out, right? A lot of people in the world, God wanted to call his people out and establish a covenant relationship with them. He wanted them to be different from the rest of the world. So in Genesis 12, he calls a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to come and follow me. Abraham leaves everything, and God establishes this covenant with him, which is this agreement. Abraham, this is what I'm going to do for you. So I'm going to make you a great nation, a special people, and you're going to populate all the earth, and it will go on forever. And so the rest of the book of Genesis, you watch Abraham's journey as God begins to establish this covenant people. One of his great, great, great grandchildren named Joseph has a rough go at it for about 13 years as you're reading this story. And Joseph ultimately reaches this place of leadership. God told him, you're going to be a leader. 13 years of difficulty, he finally became a leader. There's a good lesson in that for us, but no time today. And so he becomes this great leader, but it happens to be in Egypt. So there's this great famine in the land. It's threatening to kill all the people. He raises up Joseph. Joseph rescues the people, says, hey, come to Egypt. He's established. Things go well. They have great favor. They're given a big piece of land. Everything's going really well in Egypt. And then Joseph dies, and eventually uh, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, forgets about the impact that the Israelites, God's people, had on his people. And so he enslaves them. And for hundreds of years, the Israelites are enslaved under the Egyptians. Well, then God comes, and he wants to reinforce that covenant. It never went away, but he wants to reinforce it by delivering the Israelites from captivity to the Egyptians. And so he calls a man named Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to go and deliver my people from the captivity of Pharaoh. And Moses struggles with it. It's difficult. But eventually, he obeys. And through a series of plagues and miraculous events, God delivers people from his people and reestablishes them as his special people. And the covenant says, I'm going to give you a land, this incredible land. And so for the book of Genesis, now they're journeying toward that promised land to be that promised people. And along the way, different difficulties would come in their direction. Different people wanting to conquer them, people wanting to make things hard and frustrating and bad. And in Exodus 17, we encounter one of those difficulties. And it's found in a group of people called the Amalekites. 
Okay? The Amalekites come and say, we're going to defeat the Israelites. So Moses, the leader of the Israelites, goes up on this mountain ledge that overlooks the battleground. And he takes with him this staff. And the staff was important because God used the staff to bring about the plagues that delivered them from Egypt. And so he put it in the water, it parted the seas. It's really great, uh, the great way that God works. And so he has the staff. He's up on top of this mountain overlooking the battle. And what happens is anytime he raised his arms up with that staff over his head, the Israelites would begin to win the battle. But anytime his arms came down, the Amalekites would begin to win the battle. So back and forth, back and forth, right? He keeps his arms up. They need to win this battle. But what happens is, like would happen to any of us, his arms get tired. He gets fatigued. He's coming to that point where he realizes, I can't keep my arms up anymore and we're going to lose. But the beauty of the story, one of the reasons I love the story in Exodus 17 is that he brings with him Aaron and Hur. And they come up on that mountaintop with him. And when Moses' arms get to the point where he can't hold them up anymore, they sit him down and they prop his arms up and they hold him up. And God works powerfully through that togetherness, that connectedness, and delivers them. Delivers them. I love that for a lot of reasons. One, the hero of the story is God. And he proves that by saying, Moses, you can't hold your arms up long enough to win this battle. You need me. And he creates a dependency and he works through his people. The other one is I think it's a beautiful picture of church. See, the, the intended purpose of church is that we would be a place that's safe for us to pursue God. It's this pursuit that we're all on of knowing him and becoming more like him. And there are times where there's difficulty and frustration and we're fatigued and we're tired and we just we don't know if we can get through it. And the church then, the purpose of the church is that we would come around one another, this safe place where we'd hold each other's arms up and God would work powerfully through our togetherness. The problem, though, as much as I love that story, is that many of us sitting in this room, that has not been our experience with church. This safe place where you can ask questions and journey and have doubt and and go through hard times and be forgiven and have your arms held up has not been the experience we have had in church. In fact, many of us have been hurt by the church. We've been burned by the church. When we felt weak, the church was not there to hold our arms up and instead allowed our arms to fall and ultimately watched us fail. So I want to start today really simply If that's you, if you've had a rough go at it with church, two things. One, I I know how you feel. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't have a church background until I became a a senior in high school, and and, and it was then that I got introduced to life in the church. And and I just want to start out by saying this. If, If you've been hurt by the church, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. There's no excuse. That's not the way church is supposed to be. That's not supposed to happen. Let me say it this way. If that's you here at New Hope, if New Hope has done that, for some way you feel like you've been hurt here or that you have been so tired your arms are going to fall and you haven't felt supported, like your arms can be held up in this place, then I'm sorry. Like from the bottom of my heart, I'm sorry because that's not church. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And so today I want us to journey through some scripture and come to an understanding of what it is we do believe about church. What is church supposed to be? And so before we jump into Acts chapter 2, I think it'd be good if we defined church. And the definition I'm going to work with is kind of theological, so I want you to stick with me. But I've come across a lot of definitions, and this one I really enjoy. I really like it. I think it's succinct. It comes from a professor at Johnson Bible College or Johnson University. His name is Daniel Overdorf, and here's how he defines the church. He says, The church is the community of God's people rooted in his eternal plan, initiated in his covenant with Abraham when he called Abraham out expressed through his covenant with Moses. We talked about that, this promised land. 
brought to fruition through the covenant of Christ's blood. So Jesus is the ultimate one who brought this together. Once that is established, that covenant has been fulfilled through Jesus. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Holy Spirit empowers Christians then to minister to one another, to extend his grace throughout to, of Christ throughout all the world, which means that's our mission of living. That's our goal in life is to express the grace of Jesus to as many people as we can, and glorifying God through all generations and into eternity. Let, let me break it down for you a little bit just to help you understand it. God instituted a covenant when he called his people out, and that covenant was to establish them as a set-apart people. And so throughout your entire Old Testament, you watch the covenant people try to live up to their part of the covenant, and it came to this point where they couldn't do it. Their arms were too weak. It was falling. So ultimately, God, through Jesus, does for us what we couldn't do. He lives up to his part of the covenant and ours. And he does for us what we couldn't do. And so he really brings to fruition this entire covenant because of Jesus. Jesus is the center of it all. And then, because of that, he sends us the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, and now we have this purpose. We're this set-apart people because of Jesus that are supposed to be so intimately connected to one another. But we have a purpose, and our purpose is to share the grace of Jesus with as many people as we can, and then we take care of one another. I don't know if you saw that in his definition. I love it. We provide for one another. We care for one another. We take care of one another. This isn't a seat on a Sunday, a stage that you come and watch. This is a togetherness, a connectedness that takes place. When your arms get tired, someone holds them up. And this is the best part. Ultimately, the goal of all of it is to keep our attention and focus on the glory of God. When I say glory of God, some of you might not understand what that means, and so I'm going to give you a basic definition that really falls short of encompassing everything that glory is, but it is the purpose and the goal of your life to do everything you can to make much of him. I want to make him famous. I want to point everyone to Jesus. I want to lift God up. I want want it all to be about him and not about me. read this week of a famous theologian in church history who did not want to be remembered, so I'm not going to tell you his name, okay? (laughs) But he's famous, I promise. And when he, he had accomplished so much in church history, he'd written so much and so much good work, when he died, he made it a request in his will that he be buried in an unmarked grave. And to this day, no one knows where he's buried. No one knows, because he said, I don't want to be honored when I'm gone. I want it to be about Jesus. See, that's bringing him glory. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 because we can talk about this all day long, but what does it look like when a community actually is this? It's not just in theory. It's not like, oh, yeah, the Bible says this is what the church should be. But what does the church look like when the church lives out what we're called to here? So if you have your Bible, you can go to Acts 2. And we're going to start in verse 42. But before we get there, I want to jump back and give you some context. We used to say this all the time around here. When it comes to Bible study, context is? You're still here. I love it. Context is king. Good job. Okay, so Acts chapter 2, what takes place is the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in this upper room. There's about 120 believers when this all takes place, and they become Christians, and, and, and up goes Peter to preach this incredible sermon. And Peter stands up, and he preaches this sermon, this kind of long sermon, but it's a sermon. It's a good sermon. It lays out all of Christianity, what the point of it all is. And we're going to pick up in verse 37 and what takes place when the people hear this sermon. They say this, Peter's words pierced their hearts. What that means is like it cut them to the heart. Have you ever been cut to the heart? This is what it means. What I just heard, I cannot leave unless I respond to what I just heard. Like I can't go on with my life unless something changes because of what I've just encountered. So they want to respond to this sermon. So they say to him, what should we do? Verse 38, Peter says, each of you, you need to repent of your sins 
Turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise, when the Holy Spirit lives in you, is for you and for your family and for all who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. I always love that little detail. Like he just kept going, right? That's what we're going to do this morning. I'm kidding. Strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Here's why that's important. So after this, all these people are baptized. Now you have 3,000 Christians, but you already had 120. So you got 3,120 Christians. And it just keeps increasing like crazy after this. And the question I have is if you know your history, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian here this morning, and you know your history, you know the power both in the authority and the influence of the Roman Empire. I mean, it was the foremost power in all of the world. And my question is, what is it that made it possible for this gospel message to penetrate and have an influence, such a big influence on that culture? And there's two things. The first is this. The first is it's the power of the message of the gospel. Here's why that's important. Peter's sermon was good, long, but good. But it wasn't like the greatest ever. Last week I said one of my favorite mentors from a distance said, you want to be a good preacher, preach more sermons. This was his first sermon. Anybody ever heard a preacher's first sermon? Bless your heart. You did good. Try, try again next week. That's usually the feedback you get after your first sermon. This is his first sermon. Okay, so I'm sure it was good, but it probably wasn't like, oh, what is it that cut him to the heart? Here's what I think it was. When the gospel's proclaimed, there's a power that goes beyond human ability. When the message of Jesus is proclaimed to people, there's a power in that that takes place. And here's why I love it, because it removes the pressure from preaching. I don't have to perform. Like, it's fascinating to me how preaching works sometimes, right? I, David, I think, would attest to this too. On the days we go home and our wives are like, hey, how, did, how do you think it went? And it's like, you know, I think... I don't know why they pay me. I don't know why they've ever invited me back. That was the worst sermon I've ever preached. The next day, the inbox is full. And people are like, man, I want to talk more about that. that was and I'm thinking, no, you don't. Like, you weren't in the same room as me. That was the worst sermon I've ever preached. And yet something happens that completely blows me away every time. There's power in the message of the gospel. And the power is not in human ability. And I love that. That's what happened at that first sermon. The second thing that it does is it humbles you. It humbles you. The message of the gospel the power that comes in the message of the gospel. Why? Because you realize, much like Moses, I can't hold my arms up. I don't have the strength to do this on my own. I can't overcome this by myself. And it creates a dependency on God every time we preach. Man, I cannot believe what God wants to do through a broken person like me. And you're humbled every time. There's power in the message of the gospel that transcends anything a human being can do. But the next thing that I think penetrated the culture in Rome was this. It was... Christians living gospel-transformed lives. It's when that message hit them in the heart, they actually allowed their heart to be transformed and they lived lives that were a reflection of that transformation. Everything changed for them when they encountered the gospel and everything be became new. And they started living this way. And you're asking, okay, well, I get it. I understand how that might happen, but what did it look like, Rob? How does it practically play out when a church actually lives out what they're called to do, what they're empowered to do by the power of the gospel? What does it actually look like? Well, that's a really good question. And so today we're going to be in Acts 2.42, and there's a beautiful description of what it looks like when the church really lives the calling that Jesus has placed on us. Verse 42, all of the believers, 3,120 at this moment, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. 
And a deep sense of awe came over them, and all of the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all of the people. And in each day, the Lord added to their fellowship, their, their togetherness, those who were being saved. There's a lot we can say about this passage. Here's what I want to point out to you. So I'm reading it and studying it this week. What jumped out to me was one simple word, this word, together. Together. It appears in verses 44 and 46. In verse 44, it says that they met together in one place. Together, they were in one place. And they would do everything together. They'd worship in one place. But then you go down to verse 46. It says they met together in multiple places in the temple and homes are going around town there together. Here's why that blows me away, and I think it should really connect with you, is this. The idea that they were so together that they, these people could not get enough of each other. They couldn't get enough of each other. Like they always wanted to be around one another. They wanted to do everything together. They'd meet in the temple for worship. They'd want to come to each other's homes. They'd want to be around town together. They could not stop being around each other every single day. This is why the word together is not so much of something they participated in, an activity they did. It's not so much a location they arrived at. It is something they were becoming. Let that sink in for a minute. Togetherness. In this context, what we just read was not so much something they participated in. They didn't participate in, in coming together. They were becoming together. They were becoming uh, together that the world could not provide for them. And it was so powerful in their lives that all they wanted to do was be around one another. Look, you ever run into somebody in the grocery store that is from the church that you've attended, and they say to you, where you been? We miss you. Don't raise your hand if you've experienced that, please. Where you been? We've missed you. Or you, you, you meet the preacher. And if I ever do this to you, you can throw your drink at me and just, where you been? You should be there every week. Like, we should see you every, why aren't you there every single week? We should see you in church every single week. You ever met, or you come to Easter services and you see all your Christmas Eve friends. You know what I'm talking about? And you're all together. <laughs> Sorry, it was too easy. Uh, and you're all, but man, we need to be here every week. We should be here more often. We should, we should hang out at church more often. Here's the thing you never read in the book of Acts. You never read that. There was no plea, like, you, where you been? We haven't seen you around. Why aren't you? That was never there. Why was that never present? And when you're, because the togetherness was so transforming for them that the regular stuff of life was an interruption. That all the other stuff they had to do with their life interrupted the togetherness that they got to experience when they were the church. And so they craved it. As a matter of fact, when they weren't together, they felt incomplete. When was the last time you felt incomplete when you missed church? And as a matter of fact, this togetherness so transformed their lives that they began to, when they saw needs, they, used, they would sell things to make sure they could afford to meet that need. Right? And they would provide for one another. As anyone had need, they were doing everything they, they could. And some people read this and they, they ask this question, like, does that mean we, we have to like sell everything when we come to church and like, just like give the money? Here's the thing that you don't read in Acts 2 that's fascinating to me about this passage. When people ask that question, I'm always thinking this. When you're so connected to somebody and you're, you're just bound together, I want you to think about it like this. There are, there's a group of people in my life that mean more to me than anyone else. I'm more connected to them than I am to any of you, and I probably ever will be to any of you, and it's Sarah, Caleb, Abby, Luke, and Noah. So my kids get older, and there was a need that I couldn't meet. Okay? There was just something they needed that I couldn't meet. I would do anything. I'd sell it all. 
I'm not talking about wants. I'm talking about needs. I had a need. I'd, I'd do anything. I'd go to any, I'd, whatever I got to do, I'm going to meet your need. Here's the thing. I think what we're seeing here is that kind of connectedness among Christians. They're so together that they don't ask, do I have to? They see the need and they think, that's my brother, that's my sister in Christ. I'm like, we're going to meet the need. Whatever we have to do. You see, we love and care for one another. We come so connected to one another that nothing else in the world can provide that. Here, let me tell you what's helped me understand this. This object lesson has always helped me. Anybody ever played with marbles growing up? Anybody under 30 is like, what game system is that on? <laughs> Anybody ever played with marbles? I never did. I had them, but didn't know how to play, and so they were like cannonballs for my G.I. Joes, okay? Like, I never really played marbles. But I want you to think about the difference between a bag of marbles and a cluster of grapes, okay? Think about it that bag of marbles is fascinating. Individual pieces, right? And they're all kind of in this bag. And you'd have maybe one that, like, this guy here, and he'd be connected to the pieces that are around him, but you move the bag around, it makes a lot of noise, there's a lot going on, and he's no longer around the ones he was around before, but no one really notices just because you're just kind of moving around. And, and if, you, if you have a hole in the bag, what can happen is you see some of the, the marbles, they can fall out, and, and they make, you might not notice because you still have a bunch of other ones in the bag. And if you're not pleased with this bag, you just kind of jump over to that bag because, hey, nobody's going to notice because there's not like a lot going on there. And when life gets difficult, I want you to think about this. If we, life gets hard and your arms start getting tired and, it's just, and life starts to shake and get hard and it's difficult. And like before you know it, you're not just connected, but you're in pain and things aren't good. Now, think about it like a cluster of grapes, though. See, a cluster of grapes I can place on the table and they're shaking, there's moving, but there's endurance, there's connectedness, there's togetherness, there's something holding them together. And look, they're just like the marbles there, individual pieces connected to one another. They're individual pieces that are around one another. And, and here's what's fascinating too, when you think about a grape, these grapes here aren't directly, intimately connected to these grapes here, are they? Right? They're not. And yet they're still connected. So if one falls off, you feel it. If one is damaged, you know it. And so there's this interesting thing connecting all of them. There's this organic vine providing life and connecting these grapes, unlike the marbles will ever experience. They're not connected like that. They're not, and there's a lot of transience and movement and slipperiness here. And yet with the grapes, they're connected and held together and bound together, unlike anything else the world can provide for them. And I think this is what, this is what the Bible talks about when it uses that word together, we're bound together. So let me ask you this, in your experience as church, has your church experience been more like a bag of marbles or a cluster of grapes? I mean, really feeling connected. And when I read Acts 2.42, what comes to my mind is Nate and Vanessa Bush, Jay and David Tracy, Ross and Tina Runnels, Andrew and Tasha Raymond, Ron and Ellen Raymond, David and Martha Bourne, David and Donna Lynn, Curtis Sargent, Eric Derry, Doug Lucas, and the list goes on. And you're thinking, what? Those are just names. Yeah, those are just names to you. That's the church to me. These are the people I've been so intimately connected to, like this cluster of grapes, and they've had an impact on my life unlike anything else. And though we're scattered all around the world, this vine reaches all around the world and still connects us in this incredible, unbelievable way. We're connected to one another. 
just think about this place. Think about New Hope for a minute. If you're, not new, if you're new around here, let me, let me fill you in a little bit. Check out this picture. This is a picture of the first, one of the first church gatherings here at New Hope. It's a group of people, individuals, intimately connected to one another. There's a few of you that are in that picture. A few of you are like, yeah, I'm in that picture. I know that picture. You know what? I'm the lead minister at this church. I'm not in that picture. I wasn't a blip on the radar, and yet I'm a part of this group of believers now. I'm intimately connected to this place. I will carry these last 10 years with me for the rest of my life and, and for the years ahead of us, being connected to one another. This group of people had no idea what was going to happen here. They could not have dreamed what God was going to do when they came together. But much like our definition, when they came together, they were so intimately connected to one another and focused on allowing more people to be added to their number by being devoted to God's word, the apostles' teaching, to being around one another and connected to one another in fellowship, to taking communion. This is what verse 42 tells us. So each week we take communion as a church because we want to be intimately connected to the reality that nothing we do can keep our arms up. We need one another to hold each other's arms up, but ultimately the hero of our story is Jesus. And then there were people of prayer, constantly creating and leaning into their dependency on God, and God used them to change my life forever. My four kids would not be here without that group of people. I owe that group of people everything. Because they owed Jesus everything. And they were connected. That's church. That's church. There's a really close family uh, that, to me and my wife here at New Hope, and their names are Duncan and Serena Sheriff. And we, we got real close to them. Duncan was originally from Australia. Serena was from here. And we, we became really good friends. And then um, about two years ago, Duncan decided to move his family back to Australia. Why would anybody do that? I mean, you wake up with ice. It's great here. Uh, so they moved back to Australia. Well, this last week, Duncan was in town. And so naturally, we got together a couple times. In fact, Duncan was here last Sunday morning. He walked in the front doors. He couldn't get three steps into the door. Well, Duncan and I met that Tuesday. So this past Tuesday, we met before he got on a plane and flew back to Australia. We sat there. Ah, said it wouldn't get me. <laughs> and he said, Rob, I laid in bed Sunday night. I couldn't sleep couldn't sleep because I just kept thinking I made the wrong choice I made the wrong choice my family needs new hope that place changed everything for us he said when I walk in the front doors of new hope on Sunday he said it felt like a warm blanket on a cold day when he said that I thought that's my prayer for every one of you every single one of you my prayer is that you would experience a togetherness when you're here that the world could never give you. And we wouldn't ask what we have to do. We'd be so connected that we would just act. We'd allow the Holy Spirit to just move us to staying more and more connected to one another. So how do you do this? I mean, how do we live this out? I want to give you just two steps. Something you can take with you when you leave here. You can pray about it, think about it. The first one is this. Get connected. Don't stay on the fringes. Get connected. And it's awkward. Like, it's really weird when you go to meet with a group of people. Like, I'm telling you, you need to be in a discipleship group. 
And it's going to be really weird the first few times you go, and you're not going to really know everybody, and it's going to feel awkward, and the enemy's going to want you to make, to make you think that that's how it's always going to feel. But you've never joined anything new that wasn't new when you started. But you have to endure. You have to push through, be a part of a group. And I'm telling you, the discipleship groups in this church have changed my life and my wife, her life forever. And you can get connected. Just fill out that connect card. Jump on our website. We will, we're dedicated to making sure that you can experience the cluster of grapes over the bag of marbles. But here's the next thing. In addition to getting connected, like I really do think that you need to have your mindset on enduring. Stay the course. Because the enemy is going to want to make you think that church is always like a bag of marbles. And he is going to do everything he can, all hands on deck, everything he can possibly do to prevent you from experiencing this kind of connectedness. And so you have to stay the course. You have to be willing to continue to go through. We used to say this, like, and I, I meant it to be funny because it is kind of funny, but like, welcome to New Hope. If we haven't let you down, just give us a little bit of time. Okay? It's funny. You're allowed to laugh. Okay? Like, we, we will let you down. Right? But staying the course means when I let you down, I say I'm sorry. Like, I, like that wasn't my intent. And, and we offer forgiveness to one another. And we walk through the difficulty of this knowing we have an enemy who wants us to just stay like a bag of marbles. We have to stay the course. And focused energy over time produces. It just does. When we're focused together, holding one another's arms up, it changes everything. Let me close this way, illustrate it for you. Back in... Uh, the 1980s conversation started about trying to connect the, uh, the mainland of Europe to England. And actually, they found records that indicated that they had ideas about making this connection dating back to the 1700s. Well, finally, in 1985, leaders from both England and France began to gather investors and make a plan for this. In 1988, drills began on both sides. It's fascinating. These drills are 1,400 tons apiece, and they started on either side of the English Channel digging. And they encountered all kinds of difficulty. There was rocks and leaks. They had to insert these concrete rings that were more powerful than the concrete they put around a nuclear reactor. The drills only turned three and a half rotations per 15 minutes, and so it took years. On October the 30th, 1990, after two and a half years of continuous drilling, think about that, the patience, the endurance, the difficulty, two and a half years, this happened finally through a hole they shook hands. Like, over time, they finally made the connection. And now today, the tunnel opened up May 5th, 1994. On average, it carries 31 million people per year through the tunnel at speeds of 100 miles per hour, what they never thought possible. You can travel from England to Paris in just three hours. It cost $14 billion, needed 7,000 workers in nearly seven years to complete this thing. But they never quit. They never quit. I'm convinced if we're going to see church here in America and around the world go from a bag of marbles to a cluster of grapes, it's going to take endurance. And we're going to have to keep pushing after it, and we're going to have to apologize and offer forgiveness and pick ourselves up and ultimately come around one another when we're weak and fatigued and hold one another's arms up and keep going. That's what I want this place to be. That's what I believe the Bible calls us to be. And that's my prayer for each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful thing called the church.
God, I love that when I look at the grapes, there's not one grape that stands out from the others. No one's better than anyone else. We're just a group of people wanting to chase after you because we've experienced how you transform and change our lives. So God, my prayer for each of us is that we would get connected, that we would fight to stay connected, knowing that you're going to transform our lives and the lives of the people around us. But God, more than any of that, my prayer is that New Hope Christian Church would be remembered as a place that pointed to Jesus and gave you all the glory. And none of us need to be remembered. We just want to point to him. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.